The text that we consider this evening is Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. But we'll read verses 17 through the end of the chapter. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that is, Abram, after his return from the slaughter of Ketolamer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheba, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. Save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eschol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, on his way back from the slaughter of the kings, Abram having defeated Ketelamer and his allies and having recovered Lot, now Abram on his way back home, Abram was met by the king of Sodom, we read in verse 17. But then in the very next verse we find out that Abram was met by another king that day, a king who was greater than them all, and his name was Melchizedek. Now, there's something special about Melchizedek. In the Old Testament, in the, in the redemptive history that we've been considering in, Genesis, in the book of Genesis, three verses are given to Melchizedek. Three verses. Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. Just a handful of words. And from our perspective, reading the book of Genesis, Melchizedek appears out of nowhere. Verse 17, we read of the king of Sodom who comes, and then without, a, without a, a, a pause, we read, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. Melchizedek. We haven't heard anything about him hitherto, and there's hardly any information given about him here in Genesis chapter 14. He appears out of nowhere, and he seemingly disappears without a trace. Now, if we continuing to read the Bible and, and going through the history of Revelation that God has given us here, it may be that we might have forgotten about Melchizedek. And from our perspective, we might have thought Melchizedek, again, disappears without a trace. But that's not true. And even though we might have forgotten about Melchizedek, the Holy Spirit did not forget about Melchizedek, about whom he inspired Moses here in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. He doesn't quite disappear without a trace because the scriptures refer to him again in the book of Psalms and in the book of Hebrews. Hundreds of years after the history of Genesis 14 takes place, we find the psalmist David in the 110th Psalm making a reference to this Melchizedek. And those are the well-known words of Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent, 
Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There he is again. We haven't heard anything about him between Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, but there's something special about him. And you begin to get that sense. And then hundreds and hundreds of years after Psalm 110 was written, we find him again. Now in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 7, where the inspired writer to the Hebrews draws out from these handful of verses in the Old Testament some of the deepest, most profound, Christological truths that there are. We find in the book of Hebrews that Melchizedek is an outstanding Old Testament type of Christ. And the inspired writer now, really it's the Holy Spirit interpreting for us Melchizedek in the New Testament, draws out from him a wealth of teaching and truth regarding Jesus Christ, our high priest. The book of Hebrews. Now the book of Hebrews, the theme of that book is really how great is Jesus. The burden of the book of Hebrews is to show how much better Jesus is than any other mediator, than any other testament. And the idea is that in the book of Hebrews, the writer was addressing Jewish Hebrew Christians who were under persecution for their Christianity. They were suffering for the sake of Jesus. They were suffering on account of his name that they bore. And those Jews, Christians, were under a lot of pressure from the, 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 the Jewish community surrounding them. And they were being tempted to abandon Jesus, to be done with the persecution, to be done with the pain, and to return to that old Judaism. And so the inspired writer in Hebrews presents a battery of arguments, one after another, showing to the Hebrew Christians how much better Jesus is than that old way of Judaism and that Old Testament and all of the laws and sacrifices of that old dispensation. One of the arguments that the inspired writer uses is Melchizedek. And he brings out from Melchizedek the beauty of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And he shows in Hebrews chapter 7 that the high priesthood of Jesus is so much better than that old Levitical, Aaronitic priesthood that had been going on for thousands of years in the Old Testament. The significance of all of this information, Melchizedek, the book of Hebrews, is that the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, is Christocentric. That is, the heart and center of the old, even as it is of the new, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, of course, was born into this world in the fullness of time, but already in the Old Testament, he occupied the central place in God's revelation to his people. It was all about Christ. You see that here in Genesis 14 with Melchizedek, this outstanding type of Christ. That's a profound truth that has deep implications when it comes to our understanding of Scripture and the relation between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are differences the Old Testament was a testament of type and shadow. Many of these things were revealed dimly to the people of God, and yet there were some pretty clear uh, types. But even though the Old Testament was a testament of type and shadow, it was a testament all about Christ. They were looking forward to the Messiah who was promised and who was coming. The same Messiah who in the fullness of time was born into this world. 
so that now Jesus Christ has come and has fulfilled the law and the prophets which God gave in the Old Testament. Augustine said it in a beautiful way. The new, that is the New Testament, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. So the, the New Testament is in the Old Testament. That is, the, all of the things of the New Testament, Christ and all of his benefits and all of these things, they're in the Old Testament under type and shadow. The seed is there, only waiting to be fulfilled and blossomed forth in the New Testament. And the New Testament reveals in the full clarity and the full light of the New Testament the very things that the Old Testament was looking forward to, namely the promised Messiah. So what, what's going on here between Genesis 14 and Hebrews chapter 7 shows us this profound connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. One covenant, one revelation, one people of God, one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, promised of old to God's people in the old, fulfilled in the fullness of time for God's people of all ages. This over and against, of course, a kind of radical dispensationalism which just separates the old and the new and makes them entirely dissimilar uh, with different peoples, different laws, different ways of salvation. No. Genesis 14, in connection with Hebrews 7, shows the unity of the old and the new. So let's consider then Genesis 14 under the theme, Melchizedek blesses Abram. Noticing in the first place who Melchizedek is, noticing in the second place what he does, and noticing in the third place the, the homage paid to him. That is the dignity, the honor that was shown to Melchizedek thousands of years ago in the King's Dale in front of Abram. Who is Melchizedek? We don't know much about him. We're told some things, but there are other things that the Holy Spirit intentionally does not include in the revelation in Genesis chapter 14. Here in Genesis 14, we find out that he is king of Salem. He was priest of the Most High God. And the inspired writer in Hebrews basically quotes that, and he says, This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. What we're not told about Melchizedek, we're not told anything about a mother, we're not told anything about a father. And in a book that is Genesis, which is so full of genealogies, so full of tracing where all these people came from, yet we find the genealogy of Melchizedek conspicuously absent. It's not there. As the writer to the Hebrews says, this Melchizedek is without father, Verse 3, chapter 7, without father, without mother, without descent, without genealogy, that is. Now, the idea here is that that's how the scriptures present him. When you read Genesis 14, Melchizedek is presented by God as someone who just comes out of nowhere. We don't even hear about a mother or a father or a genealogy. Now, Melchizedek was a real human being. And as a real human being, he had a human father, and he had a human mother. 
But the point of Hebrews is that the scriptures don't say that for a reason. Because he's presented as someone who is without genealogy. And as the, the book of Hebrews says, one of the reasons is to show that unlike all of the Levitical priests, which had to have a careful tracing of their genealogy all the way back to Aaron, you don't find it with Melchizedek. Because the scriptures intentionally hide that information from us for the sake of the type. So we're not told that. We're given no record of his birth or of his death. What we do know is that he was king of Salem. King of Salem. Now that name literally means peace. So that's why the inspired writer interprets that for us. King of peace. King of Salem. We don't know exactly where Salem was. Many think of Salem as being another name for Jerusalem. Salem in Jerusalem. But we're not told exactly. If it was Jerusalem, that would have been a place about 20 miles north and a little bit east from Abram's station in Hebron. But we're not told. We do know this also, that Melchizedek here was a believer, was a child of God. We learn that from Genesis 14 where he takes the name, when he confesses the name God, blessed be Abram of the Most High God. And then later on in verse 20, blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand. And when you compare that with verse 22, the Most High God is Jehovah, the one only true and living God. Melchizedek was a believer, a child of God. That's striking. And the fact that he was a priest in Salem means that there was a body of believers here in Salem worshiping the one only true God, Jehovah. Now how do we explain that? How is it that you have Melchizedek and this body of believers all worshiping the one true God in this heathen land of Canaan, a body of believers that are not associated now with Abram and his company there in the land of Canaan. And what this reveals to us is that even though Abram was the, called, was the chosen one and the called one by God, and even though God was going to continue his covenant line through Abram and then through Isaac, Still, at that point in history, there in Canaan, there were other believers of God. In other lines, there were true children of God, believers, who worshipped Jehovah. Melchizedek is an example of that. And that, that group of people there in Salem who worshipped God through Melchizedek is an example of the fact that even though God had singled out Abram, still at that point in history, there were other believers. Even some of the patriarchs, that came before Abram, were still alive at this time. Now eventually, of course, God continuing his covenant through Abram, most of God's people would be confined to the children of Abram. But right now, here we have Melchizedek, and here we have the, these people in Salem. So that's what we know about Melchizedek. Some have tried to identify him with this person or with that person in the Old Testament, but that really defeats the whole purpose because the Holy Spirit wanted Melchizedek kind of to come out of the blue here and appear out of nowhere and disappear uh, almost without a trace. An interesting question is whether Abram knew Melchizedek before this meeting here in the King's Dale. Now, if Salem was Jerusalem, that was only a handful of miles away from the place where 
Abram kind of set up shop for a time there in Hebron. And we're inclined to think that if there was a group of believers there in Salem, and here you have Abram in Hebron, that they would have known something about each other. But again, we don't know. The scriptures do not tell us. But what's most important about Melchizedek is not so much the personal details about Melchizedek, but his offices and his titles that the scriptures give him. Specifically now, Melchizedek was king of Salem, and he was priest of the Most High God. He was a priest, and he was a king. In the first place, Melchizedek was a king. And the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 7 points out the, interpret- the, the, the important interpretations of his name here. His name is Melchizedek, which means that he is the king of righteousness. And he is king of Salem, that is to say he is the king of peace. King of righteousness and king of peace. And that's not a coincidence. The fact that those were his names teaches us that Melchizedek was a man of God who ruled his people righteously, who governed them according to God's law and in a way that was in harmony with God's law there in Salem. He ruled righteously. And as a result, the people there in Salem enjoyed peace. It was called Salem for a reason. And it had to do with Melchizedek, who was their king. But what the scriptures especially draw our attention to is his priesthood. That occupies the center of Hebrews chapter 7. That's what Psalm 110 puts its finger on. The priesthood, the office of priest that Melchizedek had. And in important respect, this was an even greater priesthood than the priesthood that God would later establish when he gave the law and appointed the sons of Levi, more part, uh, of Aaron, to be priests. What does it mean that he was a priest? Well, a priest was a mediator through whom and by whose work God's people had access to God and communed and had fellowship with the living God. A priest was a mediator. And in that work of mediation, the priest would offer sacrifices for the sins of God's people. And on the basis of that sacrifice, through that sacrifice, God's people would have access into God's fellowship, the Holy One. And that priest also, would not only would he offer sacrifice, but he would intercede for God's people. Melchizedek prayed for the people of Salem, brought the people of Salem before God in prayer, and Melchizedek blessed the people of Salem in the name of God with an efficacious blessing. He was priest and king. That is the first respect in which Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the priesthood of Levi and Aaron. Since the law of Moses was given, God carefully separated those two offices. And he put a strict separation between the labors of those offices. So that if you were a priest of Aaron, you are not allowed to presume and to arrogate to yourself the duties of a king. And vice versa, the king was not allowed to do the duties of a priest. Those were strictly separated in the, in the Old Testament with regard to the priests of Aaron and Levi. So that when Uzziah the king, being lifted up in pride, presumed to go marching into the temple, into the holy place, to offer incense, the priests were horrified. And they must have stared at Uzziah with their mouths down, 
what are you doing, Isaiah? And they warned him and they threatened him, you may not do this. And Isaiah, reaching out to do something about it, becomes a leper. So there you see God's insistence on that demarcation between priest and king. But with Melchizedek now, he's priest and king, both offices united in one person. Significant detail with regard to the typology. And that's what we want to turn our attention to now. Abram recognized the dignity of Melchizedek. And dignity Melchizedek had because Melchizedek was an outstanding type of the Lord Jesus Christ, our only high priest, as the Heidelberg Catechism says. So what is a type? The whole Testament we know is full of types. But what is a type? A type in Scripture is a real, historical, person, place, thing, event designed by God to picture and to foreshadow a future greater reality. So in the Old Testament, you have so many persons, places, things, events. Think the Passover for an event, the crossing through the Red Sea. Think the personages like Moses and David and Solomon and Aaron. Think the places like Jerusalem, Sodom. Those are real things that God designed to picture and to foreshadow a future greater reality. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Now with a type, you have a likeness. Well, let's justify that in the first place. Why do we say that Melchizedek is a type? Because in order to say that something is a type, you need to demonstrate that from Scripture. And here it's clear. The Holy Spirit himself tells us that Melchizedek is a type in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, especially now verse 3, the inspired writer says that Melchizedek was made like unto the Son of God. Made like, he was like the Son of God. So there's a likeness between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ, but there's also a distinction between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. Melchizedek himself is not Jesus. Melchizedek is a powerful type of Jesus, whom God put there to picture forth and to foreshadow the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, what does it mean? What's some of the substance now that follows from this, that Melchizedek is a type of Christ? In the first place, even as Melchizedek was priest and king in one person, so our Lord Jesus Christ is priest and king. He has both offices united in one person. Jesus is the king of Salem. He is the Melchizedek, that is, the king of righteousness. And those two expressions, righteousness and peace, go hand in hand. They are knit together. There's an intimate connection between Jesus being our righteousness and Jesus being our peace. You see that with regard to justification, the forgiveness of sins that God promises us for Jesus' sake. There you see righteousness and peace kissing each other use the words of Psalm 85. For without righteousness, there is no peace with God. Without righteousness, there's only enmity with God. And for there, for there to be peace, and for us to have peace with God, for sinners to have peace with the Holy One, there must be righteousness. And on the one hand, that means there must be satisfaction for sin, the satisfaction of God's justice, righteousness. And there must be a perfect righteousness 
that we must have in order to approach unto God. Jesus is our King of Righteousness, who by his death on the cross satisfied for our sins, removing the enmity which we had thrown up, and by his perfect obedience giving us and working for us the righteousness which we need to have to stand in God's presence and to be accepted and embraced by him. Jesus is our King of Righteousness, which he imputes to us through faith, justification, and therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God, Romans 5, verse 1. Jesus is also our King of Righteousness as regards sanctification, because he works in us a, a, a beginning of new obedience, so that we who before were bound and in slavery to sin now have something done to us, a new life infused into us, sanctification and the renewing work of the Spirit who conforms us to the image of Jesus so that we walk in the ways of peace and on righteous paths. King of righteousness. And Jesus is also our priest. That's the focus uh, when it comes to Melchizedek, is the priesthood that Jesus has. In the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, he's our only high priest, which is to say even Melchizedek, he was only a type he could not do, he could not effectuate that which only Jesus Christ could accomplish. And all of the sacrifices that he offered could only be typical because, as the book of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sin. Jesus is our only high priest. And as high priest, he offered a sacrifice, a sacrifice that availed for the putting away of our sins forever when he offered himself his own body on the cross as the only acceptable sacrifice for the taking away of our sins. On the basis of that sacrifice, God reconciles us to himself. The enmity is gone. The sin that stood between us, God takes it away. And he freely receives us into his presence. And Jesus, now also as our high priest, risen and ascended in heaven, makes intercession for us brings us and our needs and our struggles and all of our infirmities before the Father and receives from the Father every good blessing that we stand in need of on the basis of his cross. He receives those. And as with Melchizedek, these two offices are united in Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us, priest and king, king of righteousness, king of peace, priest of the Most High God. Not only is Melchizedek's priesthood superior to Aaron's with regard to the, having two offices, priest and king, but Melchizedek's priesthood is also superior to Aaron's priesthood because Melchizedek's priesthood is a priesthood that is forever. It doesn't end. It goes on forever. Thou art a priest forever, the Lord swore to his Messiah in Psalm 110. Thou art a priest forever after the, the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ, then, is our priest forever. Now here we want to consider that striking language that the inspired writer uses in, in Hebrews 7, verse 3, that Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without descent, and now especially this, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. That is Melchizedek having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, how do we explain that? 
Well, again, Melchizedek was a real human being. A type means to be a real person. And as a real human being, Melchizedek had a birth and he had a death. But that, the Scripture's not interested in that. The Holy Spirit presents Melchizedek as someone who comes out of nowhere having neither a birth, nor does the Scripture record Melchizedek's death. That is, the Bible does not record Melchizedek's priesthood ever ending. So we're not so much interested now in Melchizedek personally with regard to who his mother was and what day he died, but we're interested in how the Scripture presents him and the Scriptures present him as one who has no beginning and who has no end of days. You will not find that on the pages of Holy Writ. It's not there. And the idea now is that the Scriptures present Melchizedek as one who is priest forever. As though his priesthood that he occupied there in the land of Canaan never had an ending. And really, it never had an ending because it was picked up, as it were, and fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ, although Melchizedek himself personally one day must have died. The fact that the Scriptures mean this about Melchizedek, again, is evident from Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou, and this is a messianic psalm, but God is speaking to his Christ, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that the order of Melchizedek means an order of priesthood that is forever. And that too was superior to the priesthood of Levi and Aaron. Because the priests of Levi and Aaron, they died. They were priests for a handful of days, handful of years, and they died. And they had to be succeeded by other priests. But as Hebrews chapter 7 makes clear, that's not so with regard to Melchizedek. And that's not so with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ. Priest forever. Now Jesus is a priest forever and so in a couple different aspects. For one, Jesus himself personally, as the Son of God, has no beginning, but always was eternally in the bosom of the Father. And even though Jesus began to be human, so his human nature had a beginning, Personally, as the Son of God, Jesus did not have a beginning, nor does he have an ending. He's forever. He's eternal. He'll, he, he'll never die, having already once died, according to his human nature, on the cross. Priest forever. Secondly, his office of priest is forever. On the cross, Jesus did a wonder work. Jesus offered his own body as the great high priest of the church. But his work as high priest did not end at the cross, but even going on into heaven. And now at God's right hand, he continues to function as a high priest forever, doing that blessed work of intercession and that work of blessing his people. Now that's significant, that, it, that his is a priesthood forever. It's not just as though the inspired writer is saying, wow, these things line up nicely, don't they? But his being a priest forever is of great moment to us, his people who are still on earth. And the, the greatness, of the moment of this, the importance, comes out especially near the end of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Notice verse 24, but this man 
because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. That's how important it is that Jesus is a priest forever. Only because, only because of that is he able to save us to the uttermost. Is he able to save us completely? And is he able to save us forever? Imagine for a moment, and it really we can't imagine this because it defies everything the Bible teaches. If Jesus were to cease in his office of priest, if for a moment Jesus stopped being there at God's right hand to represent us, to intercede for us, and to bless us. Imagine if one time attempting to come unto God, as Hebrews 7 says, we find the Lord Jesus Christ absent, our mediator no longer there, no longer functioning as our high priest. That's the end. It's done then. There is no access into God's presence anymore. There is no fellowship with him. The way is barred. The way is closed. But because he lives forever, and because he is priest forever, the way which he forged for us by his blood into the most holy place in heaven is ever open to us. And he's ever there for us, at work for us, by his, at his Father's right hand, interceding for us and blessing us. There'll never be a time when he's not there. There'll never be a time when he's absent from that station as priest at God's right hand. That's who Melchizedek is, and we've drawn out some of the typology from the identity of Melchizedek. But what does Melchizedek do? And here in Genesis 14, the focus is on the activity of Melchizedek blessing Abram. That's the outstanding thing here. He brought forth bread and wine to refresh Abram and his company on the way back from that work of taking out four kings. You can imagine Abram was quite thankful for the bread and the wine there that Melchizedek brought. And after that, Melchizedek blesses Abram and says, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. That's what a priest did. That's what, that was his calling, to bless God's people. And so here, Melchizedek, in the office of priest and in the name of God, blesses God's child, Abram. What is the idea of blessing? And a blessing, literally, is a good word. It's a, a word of good, a word of promise that the priest speaks over the people of God in the name of God. A word of good. And it, that blessing that the priest, with which the priest blesses, is God's blessing upon his people. The high priest represented the people in one respect, bringing them before God on the basis of the sacrifice he offered in their behalf. In another aspect, the high priest represented God, who would raise his hands over the people and bless the people in the name of God. So that's what you have here. Blessed be Abram, God blessing Abram through Melchizedek, of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And that expression there, blessed, not only is that a statement of fact, surely Abram was blessed. But that's now Melchizedek expressing his desire, his intention with regard to Abram, that he be blessed. 
An important consideration when it comes to the, the blessing of the high priest and the blessing of God given through the high priest is that that blessing is not just some bare word, but the blessing of God that he speaks over us through the priest, that's a word that is efficacious, that lifts us up, that, that does good to us. God, he accomplishes the blessing that he, with which he blesses his people. So that the promise and the blessing that Melchizedek gives Abram was guaranteed of fulfillment. And Melchizedek, having blessed Abram, having invoked God's blessing upon him, also blesses God. And whenever you read in Scripture a man blessing God, the meaning is different. God does not need to be, his being is perfect in himself. It's not as though he needs the blessings of men to make him any higher than he is. But when men bless God, as Melchizedek blesses God here, the idea is praising God, saying good of God, lifting up his name on high before everyone, and giving God all the glory. The significance of this. Melchizedek blessing Abram here means that Melchizedek, here's Father Abram, the patriarch, the man with the promises, the chosen one of God, the called one. With this blessing here, Melchizedek occupied the superior position. And Abram, there with regard to that blessing, was the inferior. And that's the teaching of Hebrews chapter 7, where the apostle says, for without all contradiction, Verse 7, and without, without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. That is, no one can gainsay this, no one can even begin to dispute this, that the less is blessed of the greater. Which means that Abram there was the less being blessed by the greater Melchizedek. And this is Abram. If you were a Jew in the Old Testament or a Jew in the early part of the New Testament, Abram was the man. Now the inspired writer says, listen, Melchizedek blessed him. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the greater. So that in the first place, this shows you how dignified Melchizedek is, how worthy, how high and honorable is the office that he had there. We picture Abram kneeling before Melchizedek to receive this blessing. In the second place, Abram was blessed in the highest way because God was going to bring Christ from the loins of Abram. Abram was blessed because through this man here, God was going to bring forth a Messiah in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we like to think that Melchizedek knew that about Abram. And that here when he blesses Abram, Melchizedek has an eye on Christ who would be brought forth from the line of Abraham and would bring salvation to all of God's people. Melchizedek too needed Christ Abraham needed Christ. All of God's people needed him. The eyes of all were upon him. And in the fullness of time, the Lord fulfilled his promise in sending his son into this world. Now with this blessing here that takes place thousands of years ago in the valley somewhere near Salem, this is typical and Melchizedek blessing Abram here typifies for us, pictures for us, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, our great high priest, blessing us, his people. 
Again, how do we justify that type? How do we justify this point? Well, we've seen already that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. But now remember, Abram was not just some individual totally disconnected from the church to follow. But Abram here was the father of the church, the father of all them that believe, we read in Romans 4. This is our father here, spiritually speaking, representing the whole church. So that when Melchizedek blessed Abram, you have Christ who blesses his church. Everyone who believes in his name, all the spiritual posterity of Father Abram. Now that blessing with which Jesus blesses us, even as the blessing was in the Old Testament, is on the basis of the sacrifice which he rendered on the cross. In no other way could God bless, and could Christ bless with the blessing of God a sinful people than to take away those sins, to make atonement for our sins, and to reconcile us unto God. And it's on the basis of that sacrifice once offered on the cross that Jesus, as our high priest, blesses us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 1. So what does it mean that Jesus blesses us? It means that he speaks good over us. In the name of God, he speaks the good word and lifts his hands over us and pronounces God's blessing upon us, an efficacious blessing whereby he raises us up and lifts us up and bestows upon us and communicates to us every blessing which he obtained by his death on the cross. Really, when the minister, who's not so much a priest as the priest was in the Old Testament, when the minister pronounces the blessing, the benediction, that's, a, that's Jesus Christ through the minister raising his hands over us and saying, Blessed be you, Southeast Congregation, in the name of God, grace to you and mercy to you and peace to you for the sake of my sacrifice on the cross. Blessed be you by the Most High God. And he also blesses us when it comes to communicating to us and making us share in the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of eternal life, all of the blessings of salvation. He imparts them to us removes the burden of our sins, kindles life in our hearts. All of these things is Jesus blessing us. And the truth of that was taught so plainly by the Lord himself in Luke chapter 24. There you see Jesus blessing his church. In the history there, Jesus was about to leave. He was about to leave the earth in his body. He was about to ascend. Here are the disciples before him, representing the church, and how does Jesus leave the earth? And he leaves the earth blessing his people. We read there in Luke 24 that he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he was carried up into heaven. The last picture that the disciples saw of Jesus Christ on this earth was Jesus with his hands raised over them, blessing them. As it were, telling his people, I bless you now, and when I go to heaven, I'm going to continue to bless you. And I'm not going to stop blessing you. Because that's why I'm here. That's why God gave me to you. To bless you with every spiritual blessing earned by his blood. And so our great high priest continues to bless us. Right now. Though we be on earth and though he and his body be in heaven above, he showers us with blessing by his word and by his spirit. Comes down to us thereby. And 
blesses us so richly for the sake of his offering once offered on the cross. And therefore, what other calling than to do homage to him and to give him honor and to exalt his dignity and to kneel before him and to make his name great, the only high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. That too is typified here in this history. Melchizedek received tithes from Abram. Now, to say that for us Gentiles, the year 2020, that might not hit us so hard as it hit the people to whom the inspired writer was writing when he points this out. He says in verse 4, Now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Even the patriarch. That, there's weight there. There's gravity to that. This was not just some man paying tithes to Melchizedek, but this was Father Abraham, the one who had the promises, the one through whom God was going to continue his covenant, but here he is now giving Melchizedek these tithes. Now, those tithes, really, by giving them to Melchizedek, Melchizedek gave them to God through the high priest. And here you have Melchizedek thanking God, acknowledging God for this great victory which he, which he received and giving to God all the spoils as they were represented in that tenth of the spoils. But as we've already said, the point of the writer to the Hebrews is that this shows us how superior Melchizedek is to the priests of Levi and the priests of Aaron. Remember, those, those Hebrew Christians were tempted to go back to all of that, to go back to the priests sacrificing bulls and goats, those priests of Levi and Aaron. Now in Hebrews 7, he says, don't go back. Our high priest is so much better. We have a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And with Abram giving tithes to Melchizedek, the writer says, the Holy Spirit says through him, you really have Levi, who was in the loins of Abram, paying tithes to Melchizedek. And that shows how much greater Melchizedek is. But what we want to focus on now is this great honor that, Mel that Abram gave to Melchizedek. Abram here occupies the inferior position and he acknowledges and he pays homage to Melchizedek. He acknowledges the greatness, the honor, the dignity of this man that he was standing in front of. And having already kneeled, we like to think, to receive the blessing, he gives tithes to him. So he knows, he recognizes this, this special, divinely given priesthood which Melchizedek has. And he respects that. He honors that. He acknowledges it. And he pays homage to Melchizedek. And that too is for our instruction. Because with Abram giving tithes to Melchizedek and paying homage to Melchizedek, Abram, the father of every believer, teaches us to pay homage to the Melchizedek, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the, the thrust here that we want to consider. Abram thousands of years ago, does this with regard to the type, Melchizedek. Now we see Jesus in the New Testament with a kind of clarity, 
with a kind of fullness, with a kind of life that Abram would have been envious of. We see Jesus with all of the clearness of the the New Testament. By the word, through faith, we see Jesus, our great high priest, who came in the fullness of time and fulfilled the promises by dying on the cross. We see his beauty, his glory, his dignity, and his honor. And therefore the calling is ours in a special way as those of the New Testament to pay homage to our great high priest, Jesus Christ. If Abram, the patriarch, did not fail, and he didn't fail, if Abram did not fail to do homage and to pay respect and did not fail to go on bended knee before Melchizedek, we are inexcusable if we are lax in our calling to go on our knee and pay homage to our Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham is our teacher, and he teaches us to bow down before the Lord and to pay homage to him and to honor his name and to glorify him. And so let us honor him. And now how do we honor him? So many different ways. In the first place, we honor the Lord Jesus Christ, our only high priest, by believing in him and by acknowledging who he is for us and recognizing the priesthood in which he stands in our behalf and trusting in him and coming to God through him as the writer to the Hebrews says. We honor Jesus thereby. We acknowledge his great priesthood, which he has for us. Second place, we honor Jesus by availing ourselves of his priesthood and coming to God. By going to him by way of the blood of Christ, entering into God's presence, drawing near with full assurance for Jesus' sake into the presence of God, by prayer, by other ways, Really, every time you or your child says, for Jesus' sake, at the end of the prayer, or in Jesus' name do we pray, you are honoring your high priest. And you're saying to God, the only reason I can come to you in prayer, the only reason I can ask you for the things that I stand in need of, is because of that great high priest whom thou hast given to us, for Jesus' sake, and in Jesus' name do we pray. Then we honor the Lord by giving thanks to him and showing our gratitude to him giving our lives a sacrifice and pray of praise and thanksgiving to our only high priest, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank thee for our Lord Jesus Christ whom thou hast given to us and who even now brings us in our prayers before thee, doing so wonderful and so blessed a work in our behalf and who blesses us with every spiritual blessing which he has obtained for us by his bitter and shameful death on the cross, that wonderful sacrifice, the Lamb of God who was slain and to whom be all honor and glory both now and forever. By thy word and by thy spirit, strengthen our faith. Make us to be a thankful people. Make our hearts to sing, Lord, in praise to him. And make us glad for the sake of Jesus Christ, thy Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let us sing together Psalter number 302. Psalter number 302. Psalm 110. 
Notice especially stanza two. A royal priest forever. We'll sing the first two stanzas of 302. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen.